Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Hope your week is going well. And it's always good to come on Wednesday night, study God's Word together. And uh, we're glad that you're here. And so we have ended Revelation, and we have five weeks worth of questions that arose from the study of Revelation that we're going to be talking about. So a lot of questions that hopefully we'll be answering, looking at scriptural answers for those uh, in the next five weeks. So we are glad that you're here. And those that join us online, we welcome you as well. We have people uh, from all over joining us on Wednesday nights uh, for Revelation. In fact, there's a women's Bible study in Mount Pleasant that I heard from that they study Revelation with us, and they've been watching our, uh, our studies as well. And then heard today from uh, a viewer in Rockford, Illinois, that had a friend of a friend here in Texas that uh, recommended the Revelation study to them. So welcome to Rockford, Illinois tonight as well. And wherever you're joining us, we welcome you and glad that you can join us in looking at study of God's Word. So let's pray together and we'll start looking at the follow-up questions to our Revelation study. Father, thank you tonight for your Word, for the answers that it gives to us, for the truth that it gives to us. Lord, in, in a culture that, that doesn't value truth that much, we're thankful that you've given us truth and that Jesus has been defined as truth. And so, Lord, I just pray every Wednesday night as we study your word together, your presence would be here. And those joining us from all over, Lord, that you would bless them as well. And I just thank you, Father, for how your word is, is powerful and impactful and pray that it will be tonight as we study it again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, there are about 10 different passages tonight that we'll be looking at. They'll go on the screen there quickly as they go through. You may want to write those down rather than trying to flip to every one of those. I'm going to read all of them to you tonight. And so if you want to jot those down, you can read them later and kind of see what we were talking about from the, uh, the questions tonight. But tonight we're looking at the primary question of what happens when you die? That's the primary question that we're going to be looking at. What happens when you die? So we have completed our, the text of the book of Revelation. We've looked in depth at all 404 verses of Revelation. And in a nutshell, you remember that John began there on the island of Patmos, wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor, then he saw into heaven, Jesus opened the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of judgment uh, the, upon the earth. And then after those, Satan had an all-out assault upon the earth and upon Israel, trying to replicate everything God has, everything good. He even tried to fake a resurrection. He put the unholy trinity together, the beast and the false prophet, trying to replicate everything God had. It resulted in the battle of Armageddon. Jesus then returned to earth for the second time, just as it looked like Jerusalem and Israel was about to fall. He won the battle. The enemy, death, and evil were cast in the lake of fire. And then the final 48 verses told us about heaven. That's a nutshell of, of Revelation. But still, after all of that, we are left with a lot of questions. A lot of questions that came up that you asked me over the course of the 28 weeks that we were looking at Revelation. A lot of questions that arose in looking at the 404 verses. Not everything satisfied our curiosity. Uh, there are things in the book that raise more questions for us. So tonight and the next four Wednesday nights, we're going to be looking at some of the questions that arose 
from our study of Revelation. Even you had them or you asked them of me or ones that maybe they came up in my mind. But we're going to be looking at those. And, and tonight, looking at what happens when you die. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at why is the rapture never mentioned in Revelation. You'd think it would be. If it's true and if it's important, why would Revelation not mention the rapture? Now, some people pull out verses, and I'll talk about that, and say, well, this refers to the rapture whenever the angel told John, come up here. Well, not really. I know some try to press the rapture in there, but not really. And so, why does it not mention there? And what is, where is the rapture mentioned? The word rapture, of course, is never mentioned in the Bible. Uh, is the rapture and the second coming the same event? Some theologians think it is, but we'll talk more about that. We'll talk about why rap the rapture is never mentioned in Revelation. We'll also talk another uh, night, Wednesday, about uh, will we know one another in heaven? Revelation really didn't get into that. Other passages do get into it. Uh, knowing one another in heaven, is that just wishful thinking? We hope we do. When you lose a, a loved one, you hope you'll see them and know them again. Or is that just wishful thinking, or is that actually from the Bible? It is actually from the Bible, but we'll look at those passages. What age will you be in heaven? If you die as an old person, will you be old into eternity? If a, if a child dies, will they be a child into eternity, or will they become full grown in heaven? And so, what age will we be in heaven? We'll be talking about that because Revelation never answers those questions. And so we'll talk about that one Wednesday night. Another Wednesday, we're going to take a deeper dive into Ezekiel 38 and 39 because it's briefly mentioned in Revelation, but doesn't go into a lot of detail. And that's the, 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 the countries of Gog and Magog uh, described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, just barely briefly touched upon in Revelation. Who's Gog and Magog? Is that Russia? Uh, that's where a lot of theologians believe Gog and Magog is Russia. And uh, if it is Russia, what role is Russia going to play in the end times? We're not really told a lot in Revelation. Are we given more glimpses in Ezekiel? So we'll look at that one Wednesday. What about China? Will China play a role in the end times? Uh, what about the USA? To be honest, the USA is not really referred to in Revelation. Does that mean we're not even going to be a player at the end times as a country? So we're going to talk about all that. Questions that came up from our study of Revelation that we really didn't, um, really didn't get into because Revelation didn't really address. So those are some of the things we'll talk about over the course of the next five weeks. That will then take us into the Christmas season. Can you believe Christmas is five weeks away? Well, December is anyway. Uh, and so that will take us into the Christmas season, and then 50 of us will be going to Israel, uh, leaving six weeks from today. And uh, while we're gone for the two Wednesdays, Brother Tim uh, Franks, our new associate pastor and uh, minister to adults, he'll be teaching two Wednesday nights, and he does a great job, and he'll be here two Wednesday nights while we're gone. And that'll take us to the Christmas season. And then starting in January, we're going to start looking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, at the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And the reason we are, I think you're going to find it fascinating, but the reason we are is because Zechariah is the Old Testament revelation. And so looking at Revelation and then going right into Zechariah, I think you're going to find it really interesting. So starting in January on Wednesday nights, 
we'll start looking verse by verse at the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, who not only talked about Revelation, what would come in Revelation, but talked about the coming of Jesus. And I think that you'll find it fascinating as we start studying that then in January. So that's kind of a roadmap of where we're going over the next several weeks and months. But tonight, first question is, what happens when you die? The Revelation doesn't tell us. In fact, Revelation focuses primarily upon uh, Jesus' return, what's going to happen in the world leading up to Jesus' return, and then it focuses upon heaven. But it never really tells us what happens to your body and your spirit at the moment of death. Where does it go? doesn't tell us. And we all wonder. We may not voice it, but we wonder. We lose a loved one. We lose a, um, a mother or a father or we lose a spouse. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost grandchildren. And, or maybe even your own death is approaching. And we wonder, what is it like? And we look at the body lying here, and we know they're not there. It's obvious. We know their shell is there, but we wonder, where is their spirit? Where do they go? Are they in heaven? Are we sure? Did they go to a holding place before heaven until the resurrection? Because there's, some, there's a passage in Thessalonians we're going to look at tonight that seems to hint that. And so these are all the questions that go through our minds. And, and so tonight we hear preachers say, oh, well, they're in heaven. Well, does the Bible say that? And, or are they just trying to give us comfort? So let's look tonight more in depth at what happens when we die. Letter A on your outline, where do you go? Even non-Christians wonder this. Shakespeare said, to be or not to be? That is the question. So even non-Christians wonder, where do you go at the moment you die? Where does a believer go? Where does a lost person go at the moment of death? Take your last breath. Immediately, where are you? Well, there are some people that say you don't go anywhere. Um, they, they believe that in what we'll talk about in a moment, it's what's called soul sleep. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. There are some people who believe that. Some people believe in what's called total annihilation. At the moment of death, you just cease to exist. It's like you're asleep. Whenever you're sleeping, you don't, you're not aware of anybody around. You're not aware of where you are. You're not aware of anything. You're just asleep. And so some people believe that whenever you die, it's called annihilationism. You're annihilated. You, you're, you no longer cease to exist anywhere. And there are some that believe that. It's called annihilationism. Others believe you're reincarnated. One-third of Americans. Let me say that again. One-third of Americans believe you're reincarnated. That's 111 million Americans believe when you die, you become someone else or something else. That's a lot. Only 7% of the planet believes it, but 33% of Americans believe it, that you're reincarnated. Does the Bible teach that? No, it does not. But there are a lot of people out there, one out of every three people you meet, believe that you're reincarnated into another life. But the Bible never says that. 
Do we get a second chance to be a better person? A lot of Americans believe that. They say it would be unjust of God to give you one chance and one chance only. He wouldn't be a fair God if he did that. So he'll give you a second chance somewhere out there in eternity to, to be a better person. And if you don't make it to heaven your first time, you'll get a second shot at it. Well, God's gracious enough to provide us the first chance, isn't he? And then tell us the way how to get there and provide the way. And then give us day after day after day after day after day to make that choice. So if we reject that, that's on us. It's not on him. So we don't get a second chance to be a better person. The Bible never teaches that. So what does happen? Well, unfortunately tonight, there is no one singular passage I can take you to that tells you. Uh, no one passage I can go to to give you the answer to that. So you have to look at a number of passages together and then put together a composite sketch of what happens when you die. So we're going to do that tonight. I'm going to look at ten different passages quickly and then give you an overall picture and then at the very end tonight give you a composite sketch of what the Bible tells you or teaches about what happens where we die. Now, you've got to be careful not to take passages out of context. I'm not going to do that tonight. Um, but it's careful. you have to be careful not to do that when you're looking at passage after passage and try to put a picture together because sometimes you take a passage out of context and make the Bible say something it never says. So we'll not do that tonight, but we will look at um, the, the different passages. But before we get to those, let's talk a little bit about soul sleep. Let her be on your outline. What is soul sleep? Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't heard of it. Let me explain it. There are some belief systems today who believe in what is called soul sleep. And that is the belief that whenever you die, you, you just go to sleep. That your body is not naturally immortal. And as soon as, you're, as you die, you just rest. That the Bible teaches that. But now the Bible never talks about soul sleep. It does talk about the body sleeping. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it never mentions the phrase soul sleep. But this is the belief that you just go to sleep. You are uncomprehending at death. Just like you're, you're knocked out. Some people say you're that way forever. Some belief systems say you're that way until Jesus comes back. That's the most common theory among, among Christian groups that believe that, is that you're sleeping in the cemetery until Jesus comes back. What about those people that aren't in the cemetery? What about those bodies that were incinerated or they died in some catastrophic plane crash and there is no body? There's only pieces or ashes. What about those? Will he be able to recollect those and get those back together again? What about those? So a lot of questions concerning soul sleep. Uh, that is a term that was popularized by John Calvin in the 1500s. Now, he didn't believe in soul sleep. He believed that the soul was, quote, alive and active after death. But he, he was the first one to use the term soul sleep. It's also called the intermediate state. 
It's also called uh, mortalism. Some people thought the word soul sleep was more of a pejorative term, so they shouldn't use it. So they started calling it mortalism in the 19th century. Recently, from the 1970s on, it's been called Christian mortalism. Uh, It's also called psychopanicism. Because the word suke or psycho is the word for soul. The word panikai in Greek is the word meaning to rest or to await something else. So psychopanikaiism is the word for soul rest or soul sleep. 2008, Gordon Campbell popularized the term then optopsychism is also soul sleep. So if you run across that word, you'll know what they're talking about. Those are all phrases meaning soul sleep. Now, this belief has, is not new. It's been around since the first century that whenever you die, you just sleep and you just sleep, you just rest. Uh, but it's always been a minority group that believes it. It's never the majority of believers that believe that. The primary groups today that believe in soul sleep are the Jehovah Witnesses. They're the ones that, boy, they, they champion the cause. They have passages they pull out that they think are proof texts for soul sleep. I'll give you five of them in a moment. Jehovah Witnesses are the main group. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, another group today that really believe in soul sleep. The Christadelphians, maybe you haven't heard of them. It's a group, uh, they're in Dallas-Fort Worth. They meet in homes. They don't have buildings in Dallas-Fort Worth. Other places they do. Abilene, Tyler, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, Wichita Falls, they have buildings they meet in. Uh, But the Christadelphians is a Christian group. They say they're Christians that believe in in soul sleep. Primitive Baptists believe in soul sleep. Some Lutherans do. Seventh-day Church of God believes in it. The Worldwide Church of God believes in it. Some of you may remember Herbert W. Armstrong years ago. They're still around, by the way. And the Worldwide Church of God was a cult out of Tyler number of years ago in the 70s and the 80s and um, but they believe in soul sleep in centuries past John Milton believed in it you remember the classic paradox lost um, some people believe the work paradise lost is about soul sleep uh, but he believed in it Martin Luther believed in it Martin Luther said quote the soul at death enters its chamber and rests but does not feel asleep and will stay there until Christ returns. That's Martin Luther. John Wycliffe believed in soul sleep. William Tyndale believed in soul sleep. And our predecessors, the Anabaptists. We came from the Anabaptist movement in Germany. Those are our roots as Baptists. And they believed in soul sleep. But we don't today. And the reason we don't is it's not biblical. And we'll look at those passages in a moment to tell you why it's not. Uh, Soul sleep was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church in the Fifth Lateran Council as being erroneous. And so the Catholics don't believe in soul sleep either. They believe in purgatory. So why do the Jehovah Witnesses really today are so adamant about soul sleep? Let me give you five verses quickly. Genesis 2-7 says, uh, Man became a living being. God created him and he became a living being. Which they say that means whenever you're not alive, you're not a living being. Boy, that's a little eyes to Jesus, isn't it? Ezekiel 18.20 is another verse that says the soul that sins, it will die. And they believe then a soul that is died 
no longer exist. And they use that passage, they think, to prove that. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, the dead know nothing. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, the realm of the dead where there is neither working, planning, knowledge, or wisdom. So they say from Ecclesiastes, it tells us that the realm of the dead knows nothing. Leviticus 17.11 is, says there's life in the blood, and if there is no blood in you, there's no life in you. And so they again infer that soul sleep must be real. So the term soul sleep, as I mentioned, is not in the Bible. Then why do people believe in it, and why do we not believe in it? Well, let's look at some passages as to why we don't believe in soul sleep, and in so doing, look at what happens biblically whenever you die. So let us see on your outline some scriptures to consider. Let me give you six of them. I'll read them. They will be listed on the screen up here. You may not have time to turn to all of them, but I'm going to read them and briefly talk about each one as to why it tells us that, that soul sleep is not accurate and kind of gives us a picture of what happens at death. First one is Luke 16, 19 to 31. Let me read it to you. This is the story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus who both died. Now listen to details. They both died. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So, a believer at death carried by the angels to Abraham's side so that he didn't cease to exist. He's alive, very much alive. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, just notice the difference in those two. The saved person died when the burial is not mentioned, carried by angels, went to Abraham's side. Oh, and by the way, the other lost man uh, died and was buried. That's all it says. And in Hades, the rich man, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So let's stop there for a moment. Both continue to exist, don't they? No soul sleep. One went to heaven, one went to hell. The one went to heavens in paradise with Abraham. The one then, that, that went to hell was in torment in Hades and could look into heaven. That's interesting. And he called out, Father Abraham, I have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and come cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame doesn't sound like he's sleeping anywhere but Abraham said child remember that in your lifetime hold on a second remember do you have your memory in hell child remember in your lifetime you receive good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things but now he's comforted so the believer is comforted and you're in anguish, and the unbelievers in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm 
fixed. So you can't go back and forth in order that those who would pass from here to you are not able. None may cross from there to us. So you can't get out of where you are. This passage tells us a lot about when we die. And he said, I beg you, Father, send into my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. Not resting or sleeping. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. So, tells us a lot. Now, wait a minute. Some people say, oh, this is a parable. You can't take details from parables. I don't think it's a parable. What makes you so sure it's a parable? It's not in parabolic form. Jesus had a common parabolic form that he used. This is not in parabolic form. And in no parable did Jesus ever call somebody by their name. He said there was a certain rich man like he knew who who they were. It doesn't sound like a parable. So it's not a parable. It's real. And it gives us great insight into what happens when we die. Passage number 2. Luke 23, 43. Very quickly, thief on the cross. Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said in verse 43, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So at the moment he died... When he placed his belief in Jesus, he went immediately to paradise with God. Now, Catholics say the word paradise there means purgatory. But the word is used three times in the New Testament, paradisio. And every single time, it means heaven. It's used in Revelation 2.7. We looked at it, chapter 2. It's used in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. He uses the word paradisio. It's heaven. And so Jesus is not saying, I'll see you in a holding place later today. He was saying later today, I'll see you in heaven. So that passage gives us some insight. Third passage, 1 Thessalonians 5.10. Paul is talking about, and is talking about Jesus. He said, who died for us, verse 10, So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now you say, wait a minute, the word asleep is there. It is, but asleep or sleeping all through the New Testament is a euphemism for death. So he's saying whether awake or dead, believers are living with Christ. So that gives us some insight into what happens whenever we die. Go to the fourth passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. Let me read that to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Paul's talking about um, uh, his life, uh, his, the body, at death. So read verse 6. So we are always of good courage, Paul writes. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body 
and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due, whether it's in our body, whether good or evil. Those are verses 6 through 8. Now listen to what Paul said. Paul said that while we're here, we're in the body, but we're away from the Lord. Now, we're not away from the Lord, are we? He's with us. He's not saying that. He's saying that we're physically not with Him as long as we're in our body. But for believers, he says, when we're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. He doesn't say you're out in the cemetery. He says you're at home with the Lord. And then he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, good and bad, to receive our rewards or our just due. So after we go home to be with the Lord, there's a judgment. And then we'll go to our eternal destiny. But it looks like from the, the, the rich man and Lazarus and from what Paul said here, that whenever you die, you immediately go to what will be your final abode. The lost go to hell, and the saved go to heaven. Now look at the fifth one, Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul is talking about his own impending death. And he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain or better. So we know that heaven's better than here. If I am to live, he says in verse 22, in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. In other words, I'm hard-pressed. I want to go to heaven. It's better. But I kind of want to stay here too because I can be beneficial to you. He doesn't have some kind of death wish. He's just being honest. I'd rather be there. It's better. But it's better for you if I'm here. And then he says, verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart with Christ, for that is far better. Let me ask you a question. Why would soul sleep be far better than here? If soul sleep is accurate and true, which these passages, for the first four passages, so it's just not. But let's say it is. Let's say it is. Why would sleeping without realizing you're asleep, as Martin Luther put it, why would that be better than here? It wouldn't. And so he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. Being at home with the Lord is far better. But it's better for you if, I'm, if I stay here. So it's really interesting what Paul says in that Philippians 1 passage. Then let's go to the sixth one. And this is where Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 59. So let me, let me read this passage to you. But he, verse 55, talking about Stephen, was full of the Holy Spirit. They're stoning him. He's on the ground. They're throwing rocks at him. And he's just about to die. Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God 
and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now hold on a second. Aren't we told whenever Jesus went to heaven and made propitiation for our sins that he sat down at the right hand of God? And now Stephen sees him standing? Was Jesus giving him a standing ovation for, for his witness, his death? He saw him standing. And he said, Behold, the heavens have opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him together. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. He died. Didn't sound like he's going to any cemetery, did it? Sounded like he's going immediately into the presence of Jesus. Didn't, didn't see a grave. He didn't see purgatory. He didn't see a neutral place. He saw Jesus, and he went immediately and said, Receive my spirit. So these passages kind of give us some clues about soul sleep and what happens to us at the moment of death. But I had an email earlier this week on Monday. One of our members asked a great question. If we go immediately to heaven at death, why did Paul write in 1 Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus returns? That's a good question, isn't it? So let's look. Letter D, the last thing we'll do tonight, letter D. What about the dead rising first? Four passages I want to, I want to read to you and talk about that. And then we'll put a sketch together of what it all looks like. Listen to what Paul says. Now remember, let me give you a little background. I don't take anything out of context. In Thessalonians, they thought the church at Thessalonica, whenever Jesus said, I will come soon, they thought he meant right then. So they're waiting. It's been about 25 years. That's about 55 AD. It's been about 25 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. And they're going, 25 years? Where's he, where's he been? And so they're expecting any moment. So while they're waiting, loved ones in the congregation are dying. And they believed that they're going to miss Jesus. So they're all worried, thinking, oh my goodness, we're having loved ones die and they're not going to get to be with the Lord because they died before he came back. They thought you had to be alive at the moment Jesus returned or you didn't go to heaven to be with him. And so they're worried. They're wringing their hands and it's causing a commotion in the church. You can imagine it causes a commotion in our church if we believe that. And another one dies and we're going, oh no, they miss Jesus. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians in part to tell them, you got it all wrong. Listen to what he said, chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died. That you may not grieve as those who have no hope. So you grieve, you just don't grieve in the same way as a lost person. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with 
him those who've fallen asleep. So that means they're with him. And when he returns, those loved ones of ours that are believers, he'll bring them back with him. According to Paul in verse 14. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. In other words, we're not going to be better than them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, talking about the second coming, with a voice of an archangel, with a sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. From the cemetery? No. They're with him. They're rising with him. 17, or 17, then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, not the cemetery, to meet, in the, meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with, with the Lord. Brothers, encourage one another with these words. It is encouraging. It's comforting. And so this is not telling us they're in the cemetery and they'll rise out of the cemetery. It says he'll bring them back with him because they're with him now. Second passage, John 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming, Jesus speaking, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So is he saying at the second coming that those who are in the tombs will come out. Well, that's not consistent with what Paul wrote. But wait a minute. Do you remember whenever Jesus resurrected, the, the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning? One of the Gospels tells us that whenever he did, all the graves opened up and they began to walk around town. I bet that caused a commotion. <laughs> hey, didn't we bury you last week? And they began to walk around. Was that what he was talking about? Sure seems to be, because that's exactly what happened. Go to the third passage, Acts 24, 15. Says, Paul's speaking and says, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So as Paul is speaking, he is saying, there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. So, whenever Jesus returns, it appears that both will receive bodies back again. We talked about this in one of our Revelation passages, that it appears that, that we're a spirit as we go to be with the Lord, but whenever Jesus returns, we will meet up with our glorified body and the lost even get bodies back again to live in it forever. It appears to be the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then one last pas passage of Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 49, and then, and then, we'll, uh, then we'll close. We'll put a, a sketch together. Let me read verses 42 to 49. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the resurrection of their bodies. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, he writes. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. So in other words, our bodies here are dishonored because of sin, but will be raised in glory. They're weak now, but they'll be raised in power. Verse 44, 
It has sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. So a disembodied state is not God's plan. You will have a body in heaven. You're not going to float around as a spirit. My theology professor, Dr. Boyd Hunt, used to say, theology class, you can float around for eternity without a body if you want to. I'm going to have a body. Because the Bible teaches we will have bodies in heaven. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, Jesus. Verse 46, but it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, Adam, a man from dust. The second man is from heaven, Jesus. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Listen to verse 49. Just as we born the image of the man, Adam, we will also bear the image of the man from heaven, Jesus. So now we resemble Adam and Eve. Then we will resemble Jesus. How did he appear after the resurrection? With a glorified body. And Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, you will have a body in heaven that is given us at the second coming of Christ. So, let's put it all together. What happens when you die? It appears from these ten passages that whenever you die, a believer, and I'm talking about a lost person, a Christian, whenever you take your last breath, your spirit immediately goes to your eternal destiny. Your spirit, your personality, you, who you are. Your body is not you. Who you are goes to heaven immediately to be in the presence of Jesus. And if you're lost, you will go away from the presence of Jesus. But you will go immediately to the presence of Jesus. Folks, you will be alive. You'll be conscious. You'll not be asleep. You'll be active. You'll be doing things. John looked into heaven. He saw, he saw them doing things. They weren't asleep. They were doing things. So heaven, you'll be there. A place of rest. A place of activity. A place of waiting for the second coming. A place of holiness. That's where you'll be awaiting the second coming of Christ. And at the second coming of Christ... You will then receive a glorified body like unto His. And forever and ever you will be in the glorified body with the Lord, never to be away from Him at all. How do we know believers are there with Him now? Because two places in the Bible it tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So whenever we take a body from here and we take it out to Williams and we go to Restland or we go somewhere else, we're not leaving your loved one out there. They're not there. To be absent from that body is to be present with God. That's where they are. So when it's cold out or hot out or raining or snowing and you're thinking, oh my goodness, my loved one's out there going through that, they're not. They're in the presence of Jesus forever. And that's a great comfort. That's not wishful thinking. That's what Scripture tells us. If you have further questions or comments, see me afterwards or feel free to email me. And we'll look at more questions next Wednesday night. Let's pray together. God, thank you tonight for 
your word, how your word gives us comfort for believers. But Lord, there's discomfort for those that are lost. And I just pray tonight, anyone who is here or listening to me, first of all, if they've never trusted Jesus, that tonight before they they lay their head on their pillow, they would do that. But Father, I want to thank you for the passages you give us of great assurance that whenever we leave this body as a believer, we're at home with you, awaiting that glorified body one day to be with you forever. We thank you for this and thank you for the glory of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.